Hi everyone, welcome to Such Good Feeling. Today's guest is a truly incredible musical supervisor and musical director for some of the biggest theatre shows, including the award-winning Bonnie and Clyde, the incredible Hope Theatre production of Rent, Jersey Boys, and of course the global phenomenon that is Six the Musical. I'm also lucky enough to have her working with me on the new Jerry Mitchell show, Becoming Nancy. So please welcome to the podcast, the completely brilliant Katie Richardson. Hi, Katie. Hi. Feels like we've only barely left each other about a couple yeah, of weeks ago. Yeah, I know. It was, was it a month ago now? Yes, but it, it was a, it was an intense eight days workshop on Becoming Nancy, but um, it was very rewarding. And, yeah, uh, it was very fun. And I think it was um, predominantly a lot of new people because the the cast is a of the book and the book is is very much kind of that kind of middle sort of school age and a lot of kids there that had never really done that before. And um, yeah. there's a lot of talent in that room, wasn't there? There, wa- there was, an, and it was the, um, the concentration level was so high. I mean, it was, it was amazing. I, I had, I had a really great time and it, it was really nice to have a mix, as you said, of complete new graduates and people that have been working for much longer. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yes. And of course, you know, one of our sort of alumni, if you like, that was with us for eight days, uh, uh, Paige Peddleton, is uh, now going into Oklahoma. So Yeah. I'm going to have to go see it. I haven't seen it. I'll, I'll definitely go see it. Oh, yeah. It's a great show. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Marisha was amazing in it as well. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's good. So, And you've just come back from seeing Beyonce, you were saying. I have, yes. I saw her first show in Cardiff on Wednesday, the first UK show, drove all the way to Cardiff for it. Um, and having all I can say is to not give any spoilers away, I'm going to get tickets again to see it in London in a couple of weeks because I can't only see that show once. It was so good. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, and that's, and that's the thing about you is that, yes, you are from and work around and do a lot of musical theatre, but you're a pop girl, aren't you? I truly in my heart yes I am <laughs> I think I uh when I was younger that was definitely originally what I wanted to do and I've always really loved it and I can attribute quite a lot of that to my parents who are the same they're always um big pop and uh rock fans so how I've ended up in musical theatre I'm not quite sure but I love that too so it's I'm quite lucky and what is the soundtrack of your house growing up when you're a kid? Is it, I mean, you say there were fans of pop. What kind of stuff was was being played before you had the chance to actually buy your own music? Um, my they were massive and are massive, massive Queen fans. So it's always Queen on in our house. Um, and they saw like every Queen tour and uh, in, in the eighties and and stuff like that. They were huge fans. Um, and uh but also lots of David Bowie which they definitely passed on to me um and then my dad always used to make these mixtapes for the car so those are the things that really the songs on those are the things that really stick in my head because that's when we were going on road trips we just listened to the cassette on loop um and that was all sorts of things but like Dire Straits, The Eagles, um Two Princes is the single that I really remember being on all of those um yeah, lots of lots of eighties uh, stuff. I think because that's when they were living in London. So yeah. And was the piano your choice? Was it was their choice? Was it something? How did you kind of come to learn, wanting to learn the piano? I always wind my mum up about this and say it was her fault, <laughs> but she she said that we we had one in the house that I think we either got handed down or they got very cheap in a auction or something like an old piano that's that piano I learned to play on and apparently from when I was a baby I was obsessed with it like always trying to 
um, press it, like when I was too small, trying to press the, the buttons, as I called them. Um, so when I was, so then I got a very small keyboard. Um, I think it was like a tiny Yamaha, about like a foot and a half long with the, the mini keys that could do, had built in sounds and different loops and stuff like that. And I got that when I was, I think it was before I went to school. I got that for Christmas or something. So I used to play around on that. And then when I was in school, I, in reception class, I was, uh, I was five, that mum put me in keyboard lessons. Um, and you technically had to be six to start, but she somehow hoodwinked the, uh, the, the teacher and said she needs to do her lessons. So I started when I was five. Um, and yeah, I guess the rest is history. I, I don't, I, all I remember is learning music at the same time as learning, um, you know, maths and reading in school. So I, it's, it's so, I learned it so long ago that I don't remember not being able to do it, but that's, that's the story that my mum tells is the one that I just retold. <laughs> and obviously learning the piano, the, the, you know, when you're doing the grades, when you're doing that stuff, even at that age, it is obviously particularly, it's quite strict. It's quite, you know, more classical. Do you, as, as you kind of get older, do you find yourself move doing what you need to do to study, but also start playing around with playing songs that you like off the you know that you hear as well definitely I, I think the thing that really um changed stuff for me was when I sort of worked out that I could play the songs I was listening to on my dad's mixtapes in the radio on the piano um and so I used to do my practice for my grades my classical grades and then sort of like put that to a side and do the fun bit which was you know working out Robbie Williams songs um and, and stuff like that, which is what I used to do. And then when I was a, a, a bit older, like in secondary school, I started getting bought, you know, the the vocal selections for the albums that I liked, like the Escapology vocal selections I s still have in my house at home. And it's, I mean, it's battered because I played it so much. Um, so yeah, then then it started being that sort of thing. I think when I was like 10 or 11 and up, when my, re my sight reading got good enough that I could read from the books and not spend hours trying to learn it um and then I think it it always became about figuring out the music for me rather than just playing it because I I got in I was very lucky in secondary school that we had a very um encouraging music teacher and she used to have us you know make up harmonies for choir and then when I learned to use Sibelius a bit write them out and then try arranging for a small band and it always became about the understanding of the whole thing for me rather than just learning to play the song so I think that is what propelled me in the direction that I'm in now more than anything else and when you were listening to those I mean something like Robbie I mean were you already starting to kind of deconstruct those productions in your head into into arrangements to work out what was doing what yeah, I think so. Without re without realizing, I mean, I always used to sing along to you know the backing vocals and work out all the harmony lines, or sing along to the counter melody, or like love this particular chord and whatever. And I, I but that was when I was small. I didn't really realize what I was doing. But mum and dad said I always used to sing along to weird bits. This is how they'd describe it. Not not the not the vocal line. Um, and then when I kept, got a bit older and started doing arrangements for myself, I, I realized that I in my head it, 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 it the way and it still happens now sometimes that the har harmonies if I'm making them up or like a counter melody or whatever I'm doing they just seem to pop into my head uh like they've always been there or something and I think it's because when I was younger I listened to so much music in that way and so 
the pop style just sort of is there. And, and I never really had to study it because I'd listened to it so much when I was younger and still do. <laughs> so yeah, I'm very grateful for my past self for doing that because it's definitely made my life easier now. So do you remember the first time, even if it was just playing it, the first time that you actually started to work on what would be your arrangements? Yeah, so learning Sibelius was really a, turn, a turning point for me. Um, and uh, we had it on all the computers at school. And so I started learning that when I was, I think I was 11. And that was how I always worked out the re- arrangements, I guess. So I suppose that was a really big turning point. I don't remember there being a specific song or anything like that. But yeah, thanks, Sibelius. <laughs> and and for people that don't know, Sibelius is a piece of technology kind of a program that effectively it's scoring, but it's scoring in a way that you can actually hear what you're doing in real time. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a word processor for music, isn't it? But it's got a playback function. It's very ha- helpful. Yeah. And because, you know, traditionally your role would, you know, many, not actually that many years before, but quite a few years before that, it would have literally been pen and paper yeah, and hear it in your head. So, I mean, as much as you can hear it in your head, it is much, it's much help, more helpful to have it illustrated and hearing. And I guess you were, even at that age, the, 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 it's, the limits are endless, aren't they? I mean, you can, you could do a very simple arrangement and you could do a full symphony orchestra if you wanted to. Exactly that. And you can change any instrument to sound like any instrument you can, and you can, you can even put in, you know, when I was, when I was learning drum notation, which I was quite young as well, because obviously I wanted to do the pop arrangements. So they had to have a drum in it. Um, and they'll play back drum sounds like, yeah, that was the thing that I found really helpful, particularly when you're sort of trying to work out how to, teaching yourself it I suppose it's very helpful to have an instant playback of what happens if I write this drum pattern and this bass line I'm 12 and I'm trying to guess so being able to play it back is like a very instant way of seeing if you think it sounds good or not rather than it all being imagination or waiting to get into a band rehearsal which is you know not very easy when you're 12 (laughs) And, and then hearing it. Yeah. And as you're getting older, sort of into your teenage years, you know, then it's about the music that you like and that you want to listen to. So, I mean, what's, what's that for you? I mean, apart from Robbie, who I know you adore. (laughs) Yeah. Big Robbie fan. Um, Well, interestingly, when I got older in my teenage years, I sort of discovered musicals um, because my parents weren't so into them. I I was taken to a couple um, and I grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon, which obviously is quite convenient for uh, theatrical productions but more it was much more straight plays so I saw a lot of Shakespeare um but I found them I, I went to sh- to um, London when I was about 14 and we went to see Chicago in the West End and that was also a big moment for me that was the one I was sort of thinking about when I knew I was coming on this podcast to say because I remember watching a musical and, and thinking you know wow I want to you know do m- learn more about that so as I got older I got more into musicals and um it became a a lot about listening to musical theatre um more than it was pop music for a while um and I sort of discovered you know Wicked it was around the time that Wicked was really was first out so that was getting really popular um and then went back and discovered I always loved the rockier you know more contemporary sounding musicals so I sort of discovered Rent and then when I got a bit older Spring Awakening came out and things like that so it became a, a lot more about that um and I that on the off the back of that also got more into singing as well as playing so 
I was working a lot on my singing rather than just singing in a choir, which is what I was doing before. Was there an intention that you were going to be a singer, be an artist? For a while, when I was um, sort of older, teenager, in, in sick form, I wanted to be a musical theatre actor. Um, I'd, always, I'd always done dance alongside everything. Um, and yeah, that's what I wanted to do for a while. When I first discovered it, I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to be a musical theatre actor. Um, which is quite funny to reflect on, but I, I did really love it. And I, I still love singing now. Um, and then I, uh, another moment, which I thought of is when I was in, I went, started going to stage school and went to musical theatre classes at the weekend. <clears throat> and we sort of worked on productions each term and did a production at the end of the term. Um, and there was one day when I was in sick form where the MD was ill and couldn't come and they knew I could play piano. So they said, would you play piano for this today? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Um, so I did that. And then I think I sort of never left <laughs> after that. I realised that I could sort of put everything together into um, one position. It's a really good thing, actually, isn't it? Where that, those, those amounts of times where people have copped a break just because someone's ill for that one day. Yeah, and, and they were there. Yeah. And, and they were there. But did you? what made you give up on your dream of being a, an actress? I I don't know. I think I just sort of realized that it was it was just as fun and um piano came a lot more easily to me than dancing um which I worked very hard at but I would not say that I was gifted. <laughs> um and so it it just I don't know it just became clear to me that this was what I wanted to do instead. It somehow filled ticked the the right boxes with also seeming easier i think and were you were you seeing pop shows as well as musical theater shows or was it all mainly musicals you were seeing i was yes that's another thing i'm very grateful to my parents for is that they always took me to pop shows if i wanted to go like they took me and my sister to see s club seven and i think i was maybe nine and she was six or something and bless them birmingham was sold out so they drove us to manchester that's commitment I like yeah, that. exactly. And they and I saw, you know, when I was younger, I saw Busted and McFly like four or five times each. And bless them, like my, they always, you know, gave us money and bought us tickets to go see them and came with us because they were the artists we really wanted to see. And that's what they did when they were younger. So all through school, I was able to do that. And um, for my 15th birthday, they got me tickets to see Robbie at the Milton Keynes Bowl on my 15th birthday. And they surprised me with them in the morning at breakfast. And then we went that night. So that was very fun. So yeah, I was very lucky in that I all, they always took me to see the artists I wanted to see. And it was, so yes, I was always seeing pop shows all the way through. And I really have that, my parents to be grateful for, for that. That's cool. And with the musical theatre stuff, um, when you're going to see things, as you say, like Wicked and stuff, were you taking an interest into the people behind them, as in who was doing the musical arrangements, the supervising? Were you sort of, were you mm. interested in that area so much that you were kind of think like getting an idea of who did that and also what the jobs are, you know, that, that, that are around in that world? I actually think that I didn't really have any understanding of that when I was in school. And it wasn't until I sort of started going to my musical theatre classes that I realised what an MD was. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think I really had any thinking of that at all, further than the composer. Um, it wasn't until I got a bit older and I realised that that was a job, that I became interested in it. 
because it's not, it's not something that anyone really knew about. No. And actually, for the purposes of this, could you describe the difference between a musical director and a musical supervisor? I can. So they, they, uh, in musical theatre, you typically have the musical supervisor who is the, um, the head of the music department and the musical director who is the conductor um, as well. That's one element of their job. But that's the most visible element of their job. The conductor who basically runs the music uh, in the theatre every day. So the musical supervisor is the boss um, and they work particularly alongside the director and the choreographer um, as one well as the, what we call the lead creatives. So um, they often are, in charge of staffing the music department, which involves hiring the musical director, hiring the orchestra manager, um, sometimes hiring the orchestrator if you're working with a separate orchestrator um, and liaise very heavily with the com- the composer if the composer um, is still with us or still involved with the production. Uh, and then the musical director is the one that every day is um, in charge in the theatre, so runs the show the conducting uh, liaises with the cast the band I mean sound department it's every department you have to liaise with as the musical director um and you're also responsible for things like uh if an actor goes off ill and the understudy goes on you have to make sure they're prepared to perform the role things like that so they're very heavily related but the musical supervisor is in charge overall and the musical director is in charge in the theatre that's a very excellent explanation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I think it's good for because, you know, as you say, you didn't originally, you didn't know the difference. And there's a lot of people that, you know, probably didn't know the difference. Um, so what made you, you obviously decided this was it, this was going to be the job. So you chose, did you choose to go to Leeds or was that just the place that had the course? Um, I was... Choosing to go to uni was actually difficult for me. I, I knew I wanted to go to university rather than music college because I just thought that it would be a better environment for me. I've never been the sort of person that enjoys practicing on my own. And I knew, and everyone said that at conservatoire, that is a lot of what you have to do. So I was like, okay, that's that's not going to work for me. And also both of my parents, went met, they met at Manchester University and they had the best time of their lives there. And I just really wanted to have that sort of an experience. So... But choosing the actual university took me a really long time. Um, and I always thought that I wanted to go to Manchester, which is where my parents went. And at the time also had the best music course in the country other than Oxford, I think. It was above Cambridge or maybe the other way around. It was it was above one of the Oxbridge um, universities anyway. But um, when I went to visit it, it was just not, it just wasn't, I didn't get the right vibe from it at all. And I just, yeah, I didn't want to go there. And so I... Uh, went to a few other ones um and in the end when I, I visited Leeds twice and I just knew that that was the right one for me it just felt right and I loved the city so that's how I ended up there um and that in itself seems to be a pretty I don't know for like lucky decision to have made because I had such a great time there there's and there's so much music going on and it ended up being the perfect choice for me because the course is so flexible and I was able to study what I wanted to study rather than just doing classical which is what you have to do at a lot of the universities no problem with that just not right for me um and also there's three or four uh, theatre societies there so I was able to MD two of them um and that was really how I picked up most of the practical experience that I needed to then pursue the job further because we were 
we were doing it, you know, with, with, with amateur musicians and actors, but it was the same job. Um, so yeah, there was just sort of a series of events that were not predicted, but it worked out pretty well. So what was your first show that you were musical director for? Um, I think it was last five years. Oh, I think that's that the first one I was in charge of. That's I, a good one. I, yeah, and a hard one. <laughs> yeah, I had to practice that piano part quite a lot because that was a keys conduct. Um, I think that was the first one. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of, that's a cool one to start with, but also, you know, then it must have been an amazing thing to actually to have wanted to do it, have gone as a kid to seeing the shows and actually then have that job. And then, you know, do you even, how do you even feel like at the end of when you've actually done your first show and you go, oh, I've done one. Are you like, wow, that's amazing. Or I want to do lots more. I mean, what's. <laughs> I think it was that, that felt right. I should do more of that. <laughs> okay. So just solidified your, the fact that you, that was the right path for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I. It's funny reflecting on it because when I was a bit younger, I always wanted to, you know, play. I don't think I realised that pop shows have MDs. Mm -hmm. So I think I just was like, I just want to play keyboards or play piano for Robbie or yeah. Beyonce or whatever. Um, and and but I think that I almost was like, that's the pipe dream, but I don't think I'll be able to make it happen. So I'm gonna you know, choose the, the sensible backup, which doesn't, and that's what my 18 year old brain thought, which is working in musical theatre. I think I felt it was much more achievable and uh, likely to happen, which is so, yeah, I don't know that, that I, I can't quite remember that, that process, but I definitely made that call. But I know there's still part of you that kind of would love to just go on a world tour. Oh, a very big part. I would say that's actually probably my dream. <laughs> Still, I would love to do that. Yeah, it's to go and do all the arenas. So, coming out of Leeds, you and you, you then go to Mountview, which I suppose is the correct choice for your chosen profession. Yeah, it is. Um, I again, I applied to a few. Um, there's, there's. It's great that there's a, there's a number of colleges that do these vocational postgrads for MDs now, which just didn't used to exist like 20 years ago. So I um, applied to a few, got into a few, and then Mountview was my first choice. And I was very grateful that I got in there and went there and it had a great time. Um, yeah, it's it's a great college. It's, it's different now because when I went, it was a postgraduate diploma um, and it was quite... Um, ad hoc I suppose which, which suited me really well because they um, basically took one look at me and were like you need to know your old musicals better so we're going to put you on a Rodgers and Hammerstein show and I was like fair enough <laughs> um, so we, I spent a year doing just so much playing as well just in lots you know sight reading all the time playing for rep classes or accompanying rehearsals or all the rest of it so my piano skills went up extremely fast um, and it, and also just meeting lots of people and, and making contacts in London, which is what I needed having never you know lived in London or anything like that. And that was great. That it, It's now, the course is a bit different. It's an MA, so it's a little bit more formalised and there's modules and things like that. So I'm sure that would suit some people way better. Um, and they do modules in like keyboard conducting, modules in orchestration. You know, it, it's, a, it's a lot more formal. Um, but when I was there, it really suited me the way that it was. And yeah, I'm very grateful for that time. And I guess what it also teaches you is, as 
but in both of your roles, the primary thing is dealing with and teaching other people, inspiring other people, being around musicians, being around actors and actresses who have their own quirks and the kind of the non-musical side of it, which is the sort of social work side of it of getting the best out of people. Yeah, definitely. And I think I uh, a mentor of mine at Mount View said it's not the job is 90% people management and 10% music. And I always thought that that was a really funny thing to say and like a bit of an exaggeration, but I think since that in my career I've really worked out that that is 100% true. No, it is because ultimately everyone's looking at you. Yeah. And you're the most visible person because you're literally on a camera that everyone can see. So lots of times people do come to you because they see you and there's something psychological about that which makes you're so visible that they think you're approach hopefully approachable and so they come talk to you so yeah it, it is a lot of people management but I think that's why I like it so much too I I, I love people and you you really do meet all different sorts of people in the theatre yeah did they have any sort of obviously they had some great people there was there any visiting mentors and stuff at Mount View that came in that had done the job but weren't teachers yeah a few a few different ones um the the final the final year shows for the uh the musical theater actor graduates are always um md'd and directed and choreographed by uh external people that come in so when i was uh there the one of them was actually bonnie and clyde one of the final year shows yeah and it was md'd by michael england who came in uh, to md it and uh i was assistant md so um that was great i got to assist him and learn from him and he's a wonderful conductor so that was it was lovely to learn from him um yeah it's funny how things turn out because uh, also uh cleve september who plays um one of the policemen in bonnie and clyde is uh, one of the sub- the the larger supporting roles he was featured ensemble in that in that Bonnie and Clyde at Mount View. Wow. <laughs> and I was assistant MD. So on the first day of Bonnie and Clyde rehearsals for this one, we were like, look at us now. <laughs> yeah. So when you leave there, what's your plan? Well, it's funny to reflect on this as well, because I left Mount View in 2015 and it was a very different climate in the in the musical theatre industry. Um on my course at Mount View, I was the only woman and all the all the other MDs were men and they hadn't had many women over the years. They take a lot now, um, but there wasn't many women doing it. And for the and I really felt that when I graduated to start with that I just didn't know what I was going to do career wise. And there wasn't there was very few people that I could see as role models that were working women in the West End doing my job. So I don't really know what my plan was. I just, I really, I cold emailed a lot. I used to send like 50 cold emails a week. Um, and I really just was like, assume I'm not going to hear back from any of them and just kept going on that. And I was working as a receptionist, which meant that I was able to, you know, do research and get people's emails and send emails all day because I was just answering the phone. Um, and it took a good couple of years before anything started happening. Um, it was it was a weird time, but I was I was very determined, so I just kept trying, um, and I did little bits and pieces of I did fringe a few fringe shows and um, and things like that. But yeah, it was it was a few years before anything really started happening. I think that's really interesting. You said about was it so a receptionist at a 
somewhere that has something to do with theatre. Yeah, it was at rehearsal studios, which actually isn't there anymore. It's called Glass Hill. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but yeah, I think it was that's, really nice. I think that's really smart. I was just I spoke to someone a really um, big producer who worked with Girls Aloud and various things, and he. He got a job because uh, he could just type really fast and he got a job in a lawyer's office and it just happened to be a music lawyer's office. Yeah. And that would happen. That music lawyer happened to be a woman called Sarah Stennett who was putting together the Sugar Babes at the time. And then he ended up kind of being at saying, oh, well, I can do a bit of music and that's mm. it. He ended up working at Xenomania. So I think sometimes that's really good advice if don't always expect that you're going to get the job, but try and find another job within the area. So you're at least learning, you know, you learn so much just by being there. And it was, it was particularly, there was a lot of auditions that went on at Glass Hill. So I learned a lot about the audition process, which is, you know, again, it's all, it's all professional experience because so much of the job is listening to people audition. And um, yeah, I I actually really enjoyed that job. It was probably my favorite resting job I've ever had. But um, resting job, I love that. Yeah, that's what. They- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm resting. I'm resting. <laughs> yeah, those that can't see, I did uh, the old bunny ears over yeah, the word yeah. resting. Now. Resting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting time. I I, I just had to just keep hyper focused on my goal. Yeah, just before we go into a bit further, I mean, obviously, it's really it's a, it's getting better now as far as the male female thing. I mean, what. Why do you think it is that that there's less people coming f- through? Oh, I don't know. Um, it's weird because there's there's lots of statistics like 65% or 70% of music college graduates are female, but the numbers don't. Right. The numbers working are not the same stat. So I, I don't know. I think I've done a lot of um, discussion on this in the, in the past few years with my uh, MD colleagues particularly because we had, you know, all had this forced pause in the pandemic. So we all got together and were actually able to stop firefighting for a second and discuss. Um, and I think a lot of it just now it become, comes out of that no one has any time. So if you're trying to fill a department, you're just going to choose the people that you know, because there's no time. You already know them. You think they'll do a good job. And and lots of times people are staking their, you know, professional reputation on whether the show is good or not so you're going to want to surround yourself with people that you've worked before worked with before and can trust and I think that's what that's what causes the problem because statistically someone that you know is most likely to look like you and have the same attributes as you so then you end up you know the 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 white man hires a white male team and it's not because of any sort of bigotry or anything like that it's just because of convenience so and I think that's what I think that's I think that's what happens I I I don't think there are many out and out sexists anymore I just think like having been through it a bit myself now I know that everyone is just so busy all the time and so all you want to do is hire the quickest easiest solution which I completely understand so yeah it's, it's a tricky one to try and counter um, but I say that in 2023, in, in, in 2015, I felt quite differently to that because I saw my, um, male colleagues from Mountview get work when I didn't. And it was very frustrating. Did you have a kind of female role model of you, an older version of you that you could look at and go, oh, she did it? I didn't. 
I and I think I'm lucky that I went to I went to an all uh, all girls grammar school, um, one of the last remaining state grammar schools in the UK, and I always describe it affectionately as St Trinian's. Um, it was it was a fun school, but um, I think everyone came out of it very headstrong, and I think that I'm lucky that I went there because w- with lacking a female role model, I still was like it didn't even cross my mind that I therefore couldn't do it. Um, but I was, I was very lucky in that I did have a, a male role model, uh, my mentor, who's called Mike Dixon. He was the um, the original supervisor and MD of We Will Rock You. Um, and he's done, ve- I mean, all sorts of things over the years. Um, and he, I met him, another chance encounter, um, at a musical theatre competition that the uh, company that I worked with at university entered called West End Producers Search for a Twitter Composer. Um, and we were put through as the wild card to the final um, and then actually won. And I I was the sort of MD. I mean, every, <laughs> at university we did everything. So I was sort of supervisor, orchestrator, arranger, MD, all of it. Um, and Mike was one of the judges. And he came to find me at the end of the competition and gave me, gave me his card and was like, stay in touch. Um, you can do this sort of thing. So uh, he always, he's the one of the only people in, in my career that has replied to every single email I've ever sent him. And he always stayed in touch. So I did have him. He was my lifeline. And he eventually gave me my first um professional you know first class as we call it in the in in theater he gave me my first first class job um but he so I'm very grateful to him but no I didn't have any female role models at the time I just there were so few I I don't think I'd ever even seen a woman conduct a show so it was very very different climate in 2015 it's it's actually it's amazing how quickly it's changed in amazing in the best way yeah yeah absolutely we should say um that not only is mike um kind of the loveliest man in the world he's also (laughs) brilliant he's worked with absolutely everybody and he's got a book out so if anyone wants to go and check it out go and put mike dixon into amazon and there's some incredible stories in that book yes he had he's full of incredible stories yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and, and there's only the ones he could actually tell there's allowed to tell in the book. <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's yeah. um but yeah god he's worked with bassy i mean he's just he was i mean he's yeah every i just worked with absolutely everyone and he's he's yeah. fantastic and, and yeah he's amazing so well basically that was my next question so after all the cold calling and everything else you know what what is so the first thing you get is is through him a big turning point for me was when I started working at the drama schools in London. Um, I started at one small one as like a musical music theory teacher and then got did a accompaniment and then I got, you know, asked to do accompaniment for a slightly bigger one. Um, and then they quite liked me. So they asked me to MD one of their funnier year shows, which was Sister Act at Erdang. I think that was in 2017 or 2018 I can't uh, somewhere around there so it was a few years later uh, and I invited Mike to come to that and bless him he came um, and he found me at the end and he uh, said you know I thought you did a great job um, and I think you should give my agent a call <laughs> so so I gave her a call <laughs> uh, she, and uh, he I now understand from her, she's still my agent, Bronnie Buchanan, shout out. Um, and she's his agent as well and has been for a long time. Um, he had actually been watching my career for a few, for the 
the entire time, seeing what fringe things I was doing and watching my skill set change, etc. And when he came to see Sister Act, he just basically said, she's ready now. So I had a meeting with Bronya, she signed me, and then I, after that, had the call from Mike saying, uh, will you come and be assistant MD for the UK tour of Dr. Doolittle that I'm supervising? And I said, yes, thank you. <laughs> I would love to do that. Thanks, Mike. So yeah, that's sort of how it happened all of a sudden. First tour. Yeah, um, turned out to be an ill-fated tour. It got cancelled after about cancelled after three venues. Oh, no. But that was around the time that a little show called Six the Musical also <laughs> happened. So, um, yeah, I ended up going to Six. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? That uh, so much time and effort and money goes into musical theatre, and it's 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 an it's, it's an alchemy, really, isn't it? Because to get it right when you get it right it goes but i mean there's so many times where all this work has gone in and then if it just doesn't quite catch it can be all over and within in a week yeah and it's so hard to predict what yeah. now more than ever what will sell yeah um yeah it's it's interesting we're in a very interesting state at the moment of no one quite knows what's going to sell and and it's exciting because half of the producers are going for revivals of old titles, but putting a big twist on them, which is very cool creatively. And then half of the producers are going for brand new things, new titles that, you know, require lots of development and stuff like that, which is also really cool creatively. And it's, so it's quite fun. So who did the call come from for six? This is another good story. So the team at six wrote that show when they were at the, in their final year of uh, Cambridge university and took it to the fringe um and that's when it got that was all the just their musical theatre side to did at the fringe and i got involved the following year but joe baton who is the international musical supervisor for six when they found out it was being picked up professionally he was actually doing the course that i did at mountview so he was doing his postgrad course it was the, f- the first year after university so and he was the super he was the supervisor and they found out it was going to go out on this professional it was a small tour t- to start with with the edinburgh fringe stop which is um when i got involved and they decided that they wanted the band to be all female because they're on stage so they therefore needed a female md and he md'd it himself the previous year um and because he was still at mountview and didn't know anyone yet he uh asked Mountview if they had anyone they would recommend so they recommended me from their alumni so I just got an email from him one day about five years ago out of the blue saying we need an MD for this new show called Six it's doing these dates would you be interested so this and this was I'd already got the Dr. Doolittle job but I hadn't started it yet so it was I it was like six months from when I got the job to when rehearsals started so I actually originally took six as oh a little Edinburgh fringe gap fill that would be great so yeah, I had an email from him. Then they set me up a a call. So I spoke to him on the phone for a bit. Um, and he was like, yep, you sound, you sound great. Uh, can you come in and meet the team on Friday? And I just said, just blurted out, um, sorry, I can't come on Friday because I'm actually seeing Beyonce at Wembley. And I, afterwards I was like, why did I say that? And, 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 they, he said, okay, don't worry, uh, I'll be back in touch. And apparently he got off the phone and spoke to Toby and Lucy, who were right there, and said she, she's, she can't come on Friday because she's seeing Beyonce at Wembley. And Toby was like, hire her. She's the one. I was going to say, Toby Marlowe would love that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, yeah, that's how that worked out. So do you remember anything about the first time you actually heard it? Because it is unlike anything else. 
Um, I remember being sent after I'd agreed to sign on. They sent me the the uh, demos and the um, the desk recording from the tryout, mm. along with the the script and the score. And I remember listening through it and and having moments of being like, "This is very clever," but it didn't really sound anything like it sounds like now. Then it was very early stage development wise. Um, and then I sort of got into rehearsals and heard, you know, the tracks were fully produced then and we were running rehearsals and having moments of being like, I think that this is really good, but we, it was so quick. We only had two weeks to rehearse it the first time. And it was, it was rapid. It was a lot to learn in two weeks. Um, and then we did the tryouts in Norwich and Cambridge and, and they sort of, they sort of went fine, but a few of my friends came in Cambridge and they sort of said the same thing. They were like, this show's really good, you know? And we were all like, do we think, is it good? Like, do we think this is going to be good? And then Edinburgh Fringe was, because in, in, the, in the tryouts in Norwich and Cambridge, it didn't really have that big an, an audience reaction. I mean, big for a musical, but Toby and Lucy were having kittens of like, this isn't how this show goes down, having done it in the Fringe the last year. And they were really worried. But then we went to Edinburgh Fringe and we were in the Purple Cow at 7.30, which is sort of the, you know, the premium Edinburgh Fringe time slot. And we did the two first preview performances um we're both about 50 percent sold and that is a moment that i will never forget is we hit hit the button of the final number on the first preview and the crowd went insane like on their feet or screaming and i remember me and the girls all looking at each other it was a it was a real moment we were all sort of looking around like i can't believe this is happening like what is happening they seem to love it and then the run sold out like literally in like 48 hours and that happened that happens at edinburgh fringe world gets round and things sell out really really quickly but then we were sold out for the entire thing we added extra performances and it was like they said it sounded like a rock concert outside like it was so like the the crowds were so so loud and then we were going to the arts theatre. We originally had three weeks there and we were all like, oh, well, you know, hasn't this, this been fun feeling like the Edinburgh Fringe rock stars? Like it won't be like that in London. London audiences are too c- cynical. It won't be like that. And then the same thing happened. The, ra- the run sold out uh, and it was crazy because the arts theatre is is so small. It really, the, the reactions were so, so loud, like screaming <laughs> at the end of every number. Um so they extended at the arts for another three weeks. It ended up being six weeks at the arts. Uh, and then that's around the time that I left because I was going to Dr. Doolittle. So I was like, wow, this has been an amazing experience, but um, I'm not going to finish the tour. Someone else was coming in to finish the tour for me. They had like another two venues to do after the arts theatre. So I started doing um, Dr. Doolittle. And then uh, I found out about a month later that Six was coming back to the West End. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. How cool that they've achieved that from this Edinburgh Fringe show. And then found out that uh, we got given our two weeks notice at Dr. Doolittle. And the same day I called uh, Kenny Wax's office and said, please, can I have my job back? I've just found out that this one ending in two weeks. And they said, yes. So it worked out very well for me. <laughs> and I, I just went straight from Dr. Doolittle back to, back to six as MD in the West End. And the day that I... Um, started back was the day that the Olivia nominations came out. Um, so yeah, it was good. A funny, funny series of events, but a very good one. And again, you, it's a, everyone on stage is female, and the most incredible singer. There's nowhere to hide in six if you're one of the performers. You've got to be good, haven't you? You have to be very, very good. They don't leave the stage. I think they leave for 30 seconds total in the whole show and they, they, you know, literally run off, drink a sip of water and go back on. 
they're singing, dancing all the way through. And it's very exposed acting wise as well, because there's, there's no set, there's no props, you know, it's, it's just all about the storytelling. Um, yeah, it's a very hard show to be in for only 75 minutes. It's very, it's very full on. Yeah. And I think you're right in what you say as well about the fact that it's a, it's a kind of musical, but it is a, that it's, it's its own artist. I always describe six as like a, it's, it is like a rock star in its own right. Yeah. It's not, it's, and, and that can only be proved by the kind of the fandom of the show worldwide. Yeah. The, the whole thing is based on a, a Beyonce concert. That's what they were going for. Um, there's, there's six different Beyonce references in the show and, um, and that's what they were going for the whole time. The choreography is very influenced and all this and all that. So it's cool that it's received that reception of what we were going for. Um, and I mean, none, even when we thought, you think you've done a good job on a show sometimes, and we thought we'd done a good job, but we didn't expect to happen what's happened. I mean, it's wild. Yeah. And I, and I suppose the thing is as well, it is the perfect show for you, which mixes together that thing that you've loved growing up was massive pop concerts and musical theatre and it's probably the best example of that modern example of that that there's been yeah I think that's true um and the thing that's really fun about it is how referential it is to other music and I think that lots of people that sort of goes over their heads I think you know quite a few people work out that each queen is based on a pop star um the, the the basing on the pop stars is a bit looser now because we've really tried to have different actors playing different roles. But originally it was very based on a pop star, each one. And you can it, you can see that in the way that they're styled and the, the as in uh, physically styled in terms of the hair and things like that. But you can and you can hear that in the the vocal choices. But as a musician, it's so referential all the way through, and it's so purposeful and. I I just love that, just unpicking it and hearing where Toby and Tom Kerr and the orchestrator's influences came from. Um, and yeah, it was perfect for me in that way because the more I got into it, the more I started spotting all of them and it's all the music that I listen to anyway. So yeah, it's, it was a real stroke of fate that I was able to be involved. And it's it's created stars, you know, it's created, you know, Amy and Natalie and Grace, yeah. you know, there are people that have gone into that show and and come out as superstars. Yeah, it really has. It's um that's been magical to watch as well. Yeah, and most recently you were you just you put it on in or part of the team that put it on in Korea. In Korea. Yes, in Korean. Yeah, it was the first foreign language production in the world. Um that was a surreal one as well. The f- the first the first show of six in in Seoul. Uh I was there with the associate choreographer Freya who's been on the show th- as long as me. We started at the same time. Um and we were just we just couldn't believe it. It was very surreal. Just going back to you know when we rehearsed it in Dance Attic and then doing it in in Korea and, and having hearing Korean audience loving it. Um, yeah, very surreal moment. And all those times when, as it began to win all the awards and it was at all the award ceremonies, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was, yeah. you know, orchestras added. And but at the heart yeah. of it, it was still no matter what 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 you do to it. And obviously this is tantamount to the creatives and you is that at the heart of it, it's still incredibly edgy. Yeah. Thanks. And it needs to, <laughs> because it has to be, it could, yeah. it could so easily have kind of softened in the, in those worlds. But I feel like the quality control element of no, it has to always sound this particular way. It has to sound contemporary and modern. 
yeah, the brand is everything with six and, and we really, everyone works extremely hard to protect the brand in our own way. And I think the sound of it is the, the vocals and the sound are the brand. So we, yeah, we work extremely hard and to make sure it stays sounding poppy and clean. Um, it's very hard to keep clean vocally. Um, and we work really, really hard on that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the, the, talking about the award shows is, is I still get nervous thinking back to the Olivier's and, but I was really proud of what we did there because a lot of times when people perform at the Olivier's, they, um, just use the Olivier's orchestra and don't bring any of their own back band but six and the creative straight away were like no we have to take our band like the band are part of the show we're taking our band and to start with we were told that we would have to mime to uh you know the, the olivier's band playing and we said like that's not happening because because it's four rhythm instruments i was like i can guarantee you that the players in the in the olivier's band will be male and so we'll be miming to a man playing our part and i was like that is just and we all agreed all the creators agree we're like that is not happening with six that is literally women's playing being effaced that is not happening so luckily i i still kind of can't believe this happened the olivier's you know acquiesced and they moved around the running order so that we could use we were after the interval so they could set up the equipment during the interval so and we played live um and that never happens um yeah we played live the singing was live played backed by the orchestra obviously to click which we um really needed because i never played at the royal albert hall before and the echo is so delayed wow um and natalie's in-ears didn't work so i don't know how, i don't know how she did it and the bassist in-ears dropped out so she was staying in time by watching the drummer's hands on the hi-hat it was it was wild it's that is the single most terrifying thing I've ever done. And, and I now compare it with things that are nerve wracking by saying, is this as bad as the Olivier's? No. And the Olivier's were fine. So that was, it was incredibly nerve wracking. We all just felt like the new kids on the block and it's, you know, the great and good of British theatre are sat in the audience waiting to watch you, including Patti Lapone. Like it was very scary. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's the thing, isn't it? There's so many things that happen on a stage where the people that are involved in it, uh, it, it are just devastated. But nine times out of 10, I mean, obviously I, I watched that performance. Everyone watched that performance. Nobody would ever know. I know. I, and I couldn't, I didn't know. I mean, I, when I was on the stage, I had no idea that their stuff wasn't working. I mean, thank God it happened to Natalie. She's literally so chilled. She was, she was like, oh, well, <laughs> and but the bassist, I had no idea. I couldn't believe it when she came off and told me, I was like, how did you do that? Cause it was, she made, it was perfect. She, you literally couldn't tell, but yeah, that was a real moment of, of, elation the second half of that performance because we had drilled it and drilled it and drilled it and we did us you know a special medley for that which we'd never done before and so it's all a bit altered and I remember like the girls start the show start the number um facing upstage so I had Amy Atkinson straight in front of me and we were just looking at each other <laughs> um trying to be trying to be calm um and but the, the latter half of that song when we knew we'd nearly done it it was just it was just amazing. It was amazing. And the audience reaction was amazing. And it really felt like a moment. It really was a moment. And the whole, I mean, obviously the whole show is. So you're obviously, that's for life. Six isn't, six is with you forever. And various guises, you know, you are a custodian of it and, and will make sure 
you know that that it's always the way it is. What's the transition from it to whatever's next? Um, the, so the next the next show I did was Rent at the Hope Mill Theatre, um, which I uh, ended up doing mid pandemic, <laughs> and creating a new version of a show about a pandemic in the middle of a pandemic was a very intense emotional experience and a show that you'd loved and i mean yeah you know you and i spoke about rent because i <clears throat> worked on a version of rent and it's uh i've always described rent as it's 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 a lot it really is a lot yeah and it's almost a little unsurmountable when you insurmountable when you look at it but it gets under your skin there's it a does. there's a heart in it that it it really just it stays with you. I think that show. Yeah, the the heart in it is something that I've not really come across in another show. And it, Rent's my favorite musical. I always say that. Um, and it was working with one of my favorite directors, Luke Shepard, and he emailed me saying, "Do you want to do it?" And I was like, "Oh my god, yes, I want to do it." Um, and I think that everyone creatively that worked on it felt very similarly to it in that it was very special to all of us so we really put a lot of heart in it and a lot of the cast were um younger so they didn't know it so well so we were able to introduce it to them and they and you know they really learned the heart of it too um and it was it was very special I was so I was so proud of it and we had so many barriers with with, we thought it was going to get cancelled because of COVID and then we ended up being able to do it. And then uh, just half an hour before the second preview, we found out that they were changing the tiers and there's going to be another lockdown. And it, that was after our press night. So we did four performances, four preview performances, a press night and then closed. Um, but we were able to film it so that we therefore streamed it, um, which was so intense and difficult and no one in the theatre industry was working at that time, so everyone watched it. <laughs> so we knew it had to be good. Um, and we, you know, me and Paul Gatehouse, the sound designer, basically mixed and mastered the whole live soundtrack to go out on the stream. So it sounded good. But yeah, it was that was a really special one. And I really hope that we get to do it again. It's um, it's really important what Hope Mill is doing, isn't it? Yeah, I... I love it there. I'm going back this summer to supervise a show there called Lizzie and I can't wait to be back. It's a very, it's a very special place. Um, and they're Joe and Will who run it, their, um, community outlook is, is something that I think a lot of theatres are lacking and they're really going for it. So yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. And it's such a small venue, but I mean, they, they, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's one of those things where people will want to support it and they realize it, it's small but you can you can because again because it is so small and it is kind of such a community there you can try things out you don't have to be selling you know worried about selling 2000 tickets definitely it's um that it's real it really feels like creative freedom which you don't truly get very often um and that's why it's so great and again there's a really loyal audience in manchester but also they, the shows they put on tend to be quite high profile. So a lot of people travel up from London to see them as well. So it's, yeah, it's a really perfect balance of being able to try stuff out, but but also knowing that you will be able to get very high quality performers to come and perform there. Um, and they'll have a lot of fun doing it too, because they know that it's a, it's a fun, creative place to work and it's less about selling the tickets and more about 
creating the show you want to create. So yeah, it, it all adds up to being a very nice place to work. And as you say, it's really interesting, the timing on it, because um, even, well, again, similarly in the pandemic, which is when It's a Sin came out, but, you know, there's the, the knowledge about, certainly about HIV and AIDS with a, a younger generation. It's it's not as, people don't know as much about it as you think they do. So when they actually see it, and then again, in a, in a new pandemic, um, it's really, really interesting to see. But I think also just because of how Rent started, it's it's a perfect place for it, and and I remember you saying because I because obviously when we did it we were we were told to change it and we did change it and that whether people liked it or not was another thing. But with you, you you couldn't really change it. But then it just becomes about how you get the band to play it, and and you know and you are as much as again going back to your sort of musical theatre roots. At the same point, you know you also quite like some sort of pretty heavy kind of bands as well and rock kept and 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 rent can be that yeah exactly I, I i tried to just approach it as a musically as a period piece so i did a lot of um a lot of my prep was listening to bands from around that era and and reading quite a lot of books about jonathan larson actually because there's a lot of information out there about what sort of thing he was influenced by um and the first thing i said in the first band call was okay this is a rock show and we're going to play it like a rock band so don't my my sort of style of MDing is uh, is I prefer listen, don't show anyway, uh, which a lot of MDs don't do, particularly in the West End. It's everything is shown, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I just I th- I just personally think with a show like that, if you're half looking at the MD to try and catch the beat, then you're not concentrating on grooving. So that's yeah, that's the first thing I said in the band call, and that's how we approached it. And I just said, you know. Rent is the sort of show where often the verses are a different tempo to the chorus, and that is just music. So that's what we did. Um, and I think that I also uh, worked with some musicians that I'd never worked with before. I did a I did a call out and advertised for the vacancies, and I want we wanted them to be Manchester based. Um, and I had a great band that I'd never worked with before, and they all really loved music and really played it so well. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really great. Yeah. And I think that's the thing about it as well is it's like, it's, it is over time, but effectively it's, you know, four or five people and it's just about how it's played. And there was no, you know, in its original format, it would probably sound a bit dated now, but actually the arrangements and the songs could, you know, fit really, really well. I don't think there's a, it, it felt to me as a show that isn't, it, it doesn't feel like an old show. It feels like a new, it's a period piece, but you can and again so much of it and we've spoken about this before it's about the band it's obviously about you but it's also about the guy at, sitting at the desk making it sound like a modern rock show yeah and uh and it, that was uh paul gatehouse who also does six to direct me and i he gets that and he really approaches everything truly like an artist and we had so many conversations and Spotify playlists and blah 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 of what we wanted to sound like and he just absolutely got it and the first time I heard it from the front I was like wow (laughs) and every so many people gave me feedback I said I've always found Rent really dated but this didn't feel dated musically and I was like thank you (laughs) but I think I put my heart and soul into it and I think everyone every department did that and so many people said that when they came to watch it they said you know all of your like soul was in that and I think it was so true we we really gave it everything and it was in a very 
a very fraught time. I mean, the, the production was socially distanced. They they had to be a meter apart from each other at all times, but that just added so it heightened the story so much because obviously they were it, the real people in that time was were scared and and stayed you know it meant that everyone was a bit more um, hesitant towards each other and it really added an elevation to the Mimi and Roger storyline for sure. So I'm guessing next from there is Jersey Boys for you, which which is just a super slick show, isn't it? That show, yeah. And was that one that you? were expecting or was it were you surprised when you got the call for that i was surprised um it was it was uh one of the only shows that i've actually interviewed and auditioned for the position um it doesn't that doesn't happen very often um and so that yeah the fixer got in touch said we're looking for an md for jersey boys at the trafalgar theater please send me your cv if you'd like to be considered sent my cv uh i think they interviewed and auditioned about five or six people on zoom um, had to play, you know, prepared to play a couple of things from the show and do a little interview. And then I was thrilled that I was offered it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not, it's not one that I expected. So I was very pleased <laughs> to be offered it. <laughs> How do you choose things? How do you choose what's right to do? Do you have a kind of gut feeling? Do you have a, what's your decision-making process? Mm, I think that gut feeling is a lot of it actually um and sometimes just circumstance uh and timing so much of it is timing with you know managing diaries is a is a beast in and of itself so sometimes the decisions made for you if you can't do the dates but um yeah i do i do really try and go and got feeling of what is the right thing yeah and is it and uh, an element of who else is involved i would imagine oh yeah definitely other other creatives definitely definitely yeah are very important and also as I get uh, a bit further into my career and I'm, I'm lucky that there's more maybe more options sometimes a lot of it is on the, the music and also the subject matter like I really want to work in shows that I believe in the message behind them so I try and do that whenever I can it's not always possible and also there's nothing wrong with a show that's just happy and silly I'd, I really really believe that but yeah that's what I try and do if I can and I guess when you can, and you can't always, but when you can, you will try and make sure that you give the musicians that you love the jobs in the band. Yes. And also I try very hard to advertise for vacancies because everything in theatre is closed book hiring. And I just think that that's, as I said, touched on earlier, that's sort of what gets us into the mess of lots of men everywhere so um i really try and advertise whenever i'm able to find new people and have them audition yeah i think that's great i mean it's the whole audition process because it's the only way you can really find out and i don't know about you but i mean the last time that i did an audition for something which was quite specific um i was absolutely blown away with the amount of people we had Always. And the amount of amazing people. Yeah. Yeah. And people that I just know will be, they're now in the book, they'll be there. I'll yeah. give them jobs and I will recommend them for other jobs. Exactly. And that's so, uh, there's, there's two, uh, the drummer and the guitar player I had for rent at the Hope Mill Theatre, I found by advertising. I didn't know them. And I now honestly book them for anything I can. They are both unbelievable. So yeah, it, it sometimes, it, it can't always work out. I'm sure sometimes people find, you know, take a chance on people and the chance doesn't work out. But I think you have to focus on the times it really, really does work out. Um, and whenever I can, I always try and make sure that there's 50-50 gender split in a band if I have any say. Mm -hmm. um, 
which thankfully I'm getting more and more say in. And I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, try and make sure that there's global majority musicians because that is an area that's overlooked in the musical theatre world. Um, even way, it's way worse than the musical theatre world that it is in the pop world. Way worse. Mm. Um, you know, things like that. Just try and try and do what I can because <laughs> I, I always think I've got to, you know, put my money where my mouth is with that. Well, you do. And also you need to be the version of you that you didn't have yeah. when you were growing up yeah. effectively, which is a big, quite a big sort of thing to say, but I think, you know, th- you're doing that really well for anyone that is kind of listening and would say, well, actually I'm a drummer. And I, I mean, when you put out a call like that, where does that call go? How do people find out that you would be looking for people? Um, I always post on my Instagram and my Twitter, um, which I, I also do things like stage jobs or, um, like Maestra, if we're looking for women, particularly, um, Maestra is a directory of female musicians, mm. um, around the world and they have job postings. Uh, also there's an organization called Ladies of the Stave that host networking events for female musicians that want to work in theatre. So I always send it to them. Um, but yeah, social media, I think has been really, really helpful because the reach, I mean, when we did a, a, a I did a post for musicians for six. Um, we did a big advertising call out for that last year. I think my post had something like 45,000 impressions um, because people send it around. And, and the good, the great thing about Instagram and Twitter is that they're free. So many of the jobs boards you have to pay to see. So yeah, that's why I found social media to be so beneficial. So what I would say about that, I think that's great. You said that. I would say I would I would say this to any musician, singer, anyone listening. Katie and I do not care how many followers we have. We are not interested in that, but we do care about giving people opportunities. So yeah, and I have had people that have and. I've had people that have followed me on Instagram who have messaged me. It's absolutely fine to message people. You know, Definitely. it is. There are people working in in your shows, in shows that with the artists that I work with, because they've messaged me and said, Oh, listen, you know, if if I can ever do anything, this is me, this is what I do. Anytime someone does that, and I'm, you, I bet you're exactly the same, I check it out. And if it's someone I think is good, their name goes in on the list. Yeah. Exactly. And I actually have, a, I have directories of musicians, like spreadsheets and stuff that I always try and add them to. Yeah. And, and it's always worth doing. And no one minds, like none of us mind if you want to do it. It doesn't mean that we might, we may not reply, we may not come back, but nine times out of 10, if you follow, I mean, God, obviously not just us, any musical director, anyone that is in doing our job, if you just follow them, check it out, because one day there could be something saying we're looking for people. Um, and, you know, you said in when you were younger, you know, you were cold calling people, you were trying. It's okay to do that. It's, it's work. I know it's a bit of a pain, but actually, even if one person comes back, that could be your career. Exactly. Yeah. You just have to assume you won't hear back to protect yourself emotionally from being sad. And then yes. if you do hear back, great. Yeah. And don't worry if the person doesn't follow you back. That's okay as well. But just, yeah. just, just be there because weirdly Instagram for all of the kind of dodgy stuff it's um it is fantastic at that and actually i found with instagram a lot of the times it's the thing that everyone's on all the time yeah so they are going to be quite reactive quite quickly and also what would you say is a good thing 
Um, I'm going to ask you this so I don't have to answer it. What do you, what would you, someone's, someone's sent you something and said, you know, oh, I'm a bass player. What should they put? What are you looking for? What content do you need? Um, I would say any, just any sort of video of them playing, whether that's in a band or in a pit band or the, in their bedroom. Yeah. Um, just cause the, that's the first thing I'm going to ask for. I, so, sometimes, you know, um, like for Lizzie that we've been uh, hiring a band for recently, I, I have to say like, have you got any of you playing rock? Cause it is quite heavy. Yeah. Um, but any, any genre is better than none. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually I think make sure that that there's always, even if you've done a video of you playing something and then you've done another 40 posts since then, cause you've been on holiday somewhere nice and there's lots of beautiful things of you on a beach and with food, make sure that there's another performance video somewhere near the top because yeah. And remember, you can pin them. You can pin them to your profile. So pin pin that because I think just one really is only one that we just people need to see something that something where it can be shown to someone that looks great yeah. and says, "Okay, this is the person. This is what they do." I, it literally just happened to me. I've just put someone in a band that I work with, and it, they sent the Instagram, and I went, "Yep, fantastic. You can you great stage presence. You play really well. I'm rehearsing with them on Saturday. Great. They're in the band." Oh, cool. So that's, you know, it really, really can be done. There's a lot of times on here where people say, oh, it's all very good. It's like, it's proactive. There are people out there and we're just two of them. There's lots of us and we want to give people a shot. Definitely. So, because we all got one. Um, So kind of that brings us talking about an amazing band. So that now brings us to Pauline Clyde, where you have your kind of dream band. And it's the show. I mean, I love that this sort of the cycle of the fact that this is one of the very first shows and it's now your show i know yeah it's it's yeah it's that has been really nice and it's it's that's another nice one because because of doing it before i'd listened to the soundtrack a lot and so i was already quite a fan of the show so it was really it was really fun to be able to to sort of take it over take it on um yeah and what was your approach um, I, again, I, because everything in Bonnie and Clyde is sort of rockabilly country and Western, uh, and, and some rocky elements. I did quite a lot of listening around that because that's, those are genres that I don't know particularly well. Um, so that was what I did with a bit of prep. Also, uh, listen to other Frank Wildhorn bits and pieces. He's quite prolific in his writing. So there's quite a lot to get through. But the thing that's interesting about Bonnie and Clyde is I think it sounds totally different to any of his other shows. So I went back to some more of his, um, his uh commercial work rather than theater work so i listened to that instead um and then yeah other than that i just trusted my instincts um when we first did the concert again i i did a bit more of a listen listen don't show as is always my approach but there's a little bit more going on with bonnie and clyde than there is in rent so there had to be a little bit of showing <clears throat> but uh again had the same drummer that i had for rent who is also playing the show in town right now and I trust him a lot. So uh, me and him work together pretty pretty well to to get the groove down rather than just him having to follow me. We often have a lot more of a collaborative approach on that. Um, and yeah, F- Frank Wildhorn is different from other musical theatre composers where he is not as specific about playing exact notes on the page or the exact note he wants to hear. He just cares about the vibes. <laughs> it's all the vibes being right. So um, within reason, we're kind of given free reign. And he sort of says to each of the instrumentalists, he's like, if you think you know better on your, on your instrument, 
of what would sound better here, then then let's hear it. Um, and so what they play isn't that related to the dots. <laughs> I mean, it's related, but particularly what Zach plays on drums. I mean, it's like when the depths come in, he just says, just learn it from the desk recording because he's mostly got slashes, to be honest, it's, and he's sort of created it. Um, yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of fun. The, the music is extremely hard in Bonnie and Clyde, so it's it's been a lot of work. But it's um, yeah, the album's out soon, so you'll be able to hear it. I think that's a really interesting point as well. About obviously, there are times where the music is the music, and it's you know, if it's Sondheim, you know, that it has to be that. Yeah. But there are certain shows. I mean, yours is one. Standing in the Sky's Edge is one. Girl from the North Country is one. Yeah. Where it can because of the nature of it you know that and again it's also about the musicians it's about yes you can be a bit free with it but as long as it's within the world of the musical that doesn't mean to say you can go off and do a solo yeah and that doesn't mean to say that you can do you know that ghastly thing where a drummer's playing way too many fields far too many times yeah but as long as it stays within the world of the the, of the piece then it doesn't have to always be exactly what's written and you have to just make sure that you work with people that know where the line is, um, which is very hard to uh, formalise. But yeah, I think we're I think we're quite lucky with that respect in in Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, and I remember you saying as well that I mean, obviously everyone is still still there at the moment. Everyone is welcome, but it did have it did attract kind of a younger audience. Yeah, which which was not particularly expected, to be honest. Um, it's, I think the younger audience like seem to like, uh, you know, it's a similar way to Heather's, which is sort of a horror show, really. Um, the more like dramatic, because I mean, Bonnie and Clyde is a musical about two serial killers, essentially. I, I mean, that it tries to sort of explain their their reasons for how they got to where they got to, and it, you know, they I think they literally didn't have another choice because it was in the Great Depression. They're not necessarily evil people, but if you really are reductive about it and boil it down like that is what it is about um and i think that's a lot to be said about the style of music it's it's very even though it's lots of rockabilly and and uh country and all the rest of it it's a lot very rocky and it's a lot of music that hasn't really been heard in the theater before and i do think younger audiences like that sort of thing um and you know there's there's two two absolutely scorching leads in that show uh Francis and Jordan are both extraordinary. And I think that that people respond to casting as well. I think the, the audience, everyone that I know that sees the show is like, those two are unbelievable. And I'm like, yeah, they are. So yeah, I'd, 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 but I, I would have thought it would be more of a mixed audience, but I don't know. Maybe they all come to see Jordan or Frankie. I don't know. No, I think I, I, I think everything about it. I mean, it's the marketing about it. It's kind of that weird thing as well, where you know, even when the Great Gatsby film came out, there was that was a massively younger audience for a very very old thing. So it's it depends on on how it's kind of pitched to them, um, and it and it was doing something right because it won Best New Musical, so that was good. That was good, but also I think that was that one meant meant a lot because it was public vote. Yeah. Um, yeah it was that it was it was it was really exciting but to get the public vote one is is nice yeah 
Yeah, really, really good. So moving forward, you're, you're back at Hope Mill. I know this. that's the one you can talk about, right? Yes. You're back at Hope Mill this summer. <laughs> yes. That's uh, that's Lizzie, which is a um, mad rock musical about Lizzie Borden. Um, so she, uh, in 1892, there was a man and his wife were killed by an axe murderer in the East Coast of the USA. And his daughter, Lizzie, was tried and acquitted for the crime. But everyone thinks that she did it so lizzie is sort of about her story it's a all-female four-hander with a all-female rock band and some of it is really heavy um like as in like heavy rock rather than heavy storyline so yeah i think it'll be a lot of fun um manifesting wise i mean i know that probably the thing that you're really you know you love more than anything else is getting involved in the ground the ground up on something new but i mean is there is there one manifesting wise that you would love to do hmm i because it's difficult because you've already done rent and yeah which is your one so i wondered what's the second what's the one behind that yeah rent was the one um i think i would probably if i was to manifest another one it would probably be something like west side story interesting yeah, like completely different. How could you do that? That's intriguing, though, because it's so. It's I don't so, know. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, I suppose on the basis of what they've done with Oklahoma, it's and Guys and Dolls, it's it's open season, isn't it? Yeah, or but I think I've I've never done a particularly orchestral um, show. I always end up doing because I do lots of pop and rock. I end up doing the small band shows, so I think for like a completely different challenge to do a proper orchestral different style would be a lot of fun okay so that and just one world tour with a massive pop superstar <laughs> yeah maybe more than one <laughs> you probably yeah. one would probably be enough Do you reckon? Would be, yeah 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 i think you'd get to that point where all of a sudden it'd be all right for the big venues but then you'd find yourself in a not particularly nice place on a wet wednesday <laughs> and you go mm, yeah i'm over this now <laughs> So, but listen, uh, th thanks for having a chat. It was great to see you. And yeah, generally, if you can follow Katie on Instagram, you'll see lots of amazing things of what she's doing. But also if you're a musician, an actor, actress, just reach out and just, you never know what might happen. Definitely. And you are changing things. You are part of the change. You are the change that you wanted to see 10 years ago. Oh, thanks. And that's thanks, important. Steve. And there needs to be, much much more of that so um good luck i will see you soon we are doing something what we were doing is now actually is happening next year so, but i'm sure yeah. i'll see you before then yes um yeah amazing thanks a lot i'll switch you soon thanks all right bye